This is the Find Your Forte podcast, episode 16. You have the passion. You have the education. Now it's time for the inspiration. Get ready to step up to the podium with purpose. This is the Find Your Forte podcast with choral director and lifestyle entrepreneur, Ryan Guth. Hey there, Choir Nation. This is Ryan Guth with the Find Your Forte podcast. I'm incredibly excited to bring you today an interview with a former King singer, uh, Westminster Abbey Choir Boy, uh, and also the Director of Choral Activities at Princeton University, Gabriel Crouch. I had a wonderful opportunity to sit down in the conference room uh, in the Department of Music at Princeton and speak with Gabriel for about two hours. So I'm going to bring this interview to you in two parts. This will be part one, and next week we'll release part two. Um, and I just, I think it's just a great interview. Um, he's an incredibly talented individual. Um, he's an incredibly insightful and thoughtful human being. I really think this will this will probably uh, be one of your most favorite episodes. So um, just to give you a little bit of background information about Gabriel, um, like I said, he started his musical career. Um, you'll hear more about this as an eight-year-old boy uh, at Westminster Abbey. Uh, he transitioned uh, after some time, uh, transitioned to singing with the King Singers in 96 and uh, has sung with some really incredible groups. Um, also like, like Tenebrae, who I know has been mentioned on this podcast several times. He runs the Princeton Glee Club. Uh, which is a 70-voice choir out of the university. Uh, and he is also the musical director of the British early music ensemble, Gali Cantus. Um, and there are some wonderful things happening with them, which you'll hear about later on in the podcast as well. Uh, previously, he was at DePaul University as the director of choral activities. And like I said, he's in Princeton now. And uh, this is just going to be a wonderful interview. So let's dive right in. Uh, I hope you enjoy my interview with Gabriel Crouch. All right, Gabriel, Choir Nation is ready. They're at the edge of their chairs, folders open and looking your way. Are you ready to deliver the downbeat? <laughs> of course I am, yes. Great, great. I'm such a geek. All right. Um, well, the downbeat segment uh, is more of the biographical segment of our interview. Mm -hmm. So um, I want you to take us back to the moment that you felt that you were prepared to dedicate your life to music. If there was, was there a particular moment that you can pinpoint where you decided, you know what, this is this is what I'm going to do. Um, this is what feels right for me. And maybe it was after, maybe it was after you made the the initial choice. You know, I, I think I'm one of those people for whom the decision was made quite early on in life, but I resisted and resisted and resisted. You know. Um, I'm one of those people. I, I come from a, from a very musical family. It was never, a, you know, I didn't have to struggle, you know, against the wishes of my parents like 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 Handel did or whatever, you know. My or mother, like most American children. Yes, I, right, yes exactly. <laughs> my mother's a professional violinist. Okay. And you know, she claims, and I never believed her. She claims that when I was four years old, I asked for a violin for my birthday. Um, you know, if I did ask for a violin, I was clearly just, you know, sucking up to her. <laughs> and um, so we then. We then had several years. Actually, my mother became a, a, a really great violin teacher, and I think I was her sort of prototype student. Okay. She um, she was pretty tough on me, 
um, I, I, mean, I just remember, you know, that the sort of accumulating violin technique as being a very tearful process. Um, I can remember, you know, I mean, I, I pitched a few rebellions in my time. I can remember deliberately snapping my bow on, in the floorboards, for instance, um, you know, because I just, I just couldn't take it anymore. I, I, I wasn't... Um, I, it's I never not a very f- satisfying instrument to start. Oh, God. No, absolutely. The yeah. noise I used to make. Um, and then I, I think also, you know, I'm, I'm the oldest of five children and... Um, all five of us play string instruments and three of my siblings play string instruments professionally now. Okay. And I think, you know, as being the oldest, I kind of, I, I saw, you know, my brother Joe, the next one down from me, I know him picking up the cello and it being a serene process for him and he was playing beautifully within a few years and never really liked that for me. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think singing was, you know, singing was my happiest territory as a musician. But I, I, I think I always fought it and and even um you know i uh, why do you I, think you fought it well i just you know because i felt like i was being pushed so so profoundly so firmly down one avenue that i and i and i i was rebellious by who by my parents and by my teachers and by my the rest of you know, the wider family and by people you know people were constantly telling me oh you're this you're that you know and uh, and i never wanted to be what people you know expected me to be i can relate to yeah. that you can? Oh, yeah. My, my parents are both Westminster Choir College graduates. Right. So, oh, I took ages 10 to 18 to be a martial artist. and, and You did? Didn't want to even, for the first half of that journey, didn't even want to touch music. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, yeah, they, I, was, I, was, I used to sit on my dad's lap listening to him play Chopin Preludes, uh-huh. you know, and I was always in awe of what he was able to do, but... Right. Never well, had an interest in doing it myself, and there's an enormous pressure on you know, you know that's all bound up in that in that you know the expectation that others place on you as well as you know as you feeling like like maybe you can't actually attain to those standards that are being expected of you. Well, or it's you just want to make you just want to make those choices on your terms. Yes, I mean because as a kid, as a rebellious boy, right? You you typically um, you know if somebody says do this, you're like no, don't do this, no, no. and then finally. Eventually, when it becomes your idea to do it, then you yes. do it. Right. But when it's their idea, you've got no interest. So I, I mean, I, I certainly, I had to find territory that 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 no one else in my family knew about, and I think that was that was the key, the key to all this. I mean, so there's no so, singers in the family. Then. No, there aren't. I mean, you know, well, my father, but you know, if you're listening, Dad, sorry, but you know, my dad's not the world's greatest singer. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, you know, so so I think you know, my teenage years, you know, martial arts for you it was cricket for me, mm-hmm. um, or golf, or anything. You know, I mean, anything. Like, like the longer the the sport took, you know, to, to, <laughs> the better. Cricket's for five days, golf is forever. You know, right, right. Um, uh, but I, I I turned up at Cambridge University with a choral scholarship, not necessarily because that's what I wanted out of life, um, but because I, I I felt like I wanted to go to Cambridge, and this felt like a you know like a a relatively simple way in, like a way, a way to go in and have structure whilst I was there. You know, is Cambridge is Cambridge? I mean, obviously Cambridge is an incredibly exceptional institution. Is it? Is it like a Princeton to America? Is that what is you know? Is that it's what much, Cambridge is like? No, I, I don't think so. I don't think we have a Princeton in America in in the UK. To be honest, I would okay. say that. I mean, Oxford and Cambridge are like Yale and Harvard, and, and we don't really have, you know. Um, we don't. Really, I mean, Princeton's so much smaller than mm-hmm. than any of those great universities. It's a uh, you know. I don't think we really have an institution like that, to be honest. Because Cambridge and Oxford have a bajillion colleges yeah. within within them, right? Yeah. So, so if is it 
incredibly difficult to get into Cambridge or Oxford. I mean, because I, I'm, I'm thinking about, because I, I, I have no perspective, because, I mean, America is just so gigantic mm-hmm. compared to the UK, and and I don't even know what other, I, I could, if you ask me to tell you other colleges in the UK, I don't think I could. I would tell right. you Oxford and Cambridge. Yeah. Or I shouldn't say colleges, universities. Yes. But, this, so the average, average people don't go to Cambridge and Oxford, correct? Right. Yes. Um, yeah, it's it's tough to get into those universities. Um, it's it, one of those places where certainly in the old days, if you had um, if if you had a lot of talent as a singer, there were ways to make it easier for you. Just as if you had a lot of talent as a rower, there were ways to make it easier okay. for you. And you know, and I've never really, I've never really kind of got to the bottom of the dark art of you know of getting into a university when you're not academically bright. But okay. the, but, but it's clearly a possibility, and it's a possible, and you know, and it happens all over the world. Sometimes it's money, sometimes it's sports, sometimes it's music, whatever. Okay. Um, uh, you said choral scholarship. Yes, so I, I had a choral scholarship there, um, which is talent based, obviously, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, I guess so. To be honest, you know, when I was 17 years old, I was a countertenor mm-hmm. and and I'd, you know, and, and this the, uh, the potential as a for, for a countertenor voice had sort of emerged rather quickly. And and some some quite interesting things had happened. I'd, I'd, I think I'd already done my first Messiah as a countertenor soloist, you know, singing. He was despised. That, mm-hmm. uh, and, um, you know, and then I was taught actually being taught by a very good countertenor called Ashley Stafford. Um, you know, one of the great countertenors in the time. And, you know, that was all going very well. And then all of a sudden, I don't know what happened. Maybe I grew another half an inch. Um, and then that voice deserted me. Oh. And this happened right before I went to Cambridge to do my audition. So I turned up there and I wanted to go to Trinity. And if I'm brutally honest, I wanted to go to Trinity rather than King's or St. John's because at King's and St. John's, you sing eight services a week, which seemed like that was going to just dominate my life a bit too uh, much. Yeah. At Trinity, you sing, I think, four. Okay. Tuesday, Thursday, and twice on Sunday. And it's, and also, you know, it was a mixed choir of undergraduates, and I think I was... I think the idea of, you know, you know, <laughs> being in a choir of boys and girls of my age sort of appealed to me for, Absolutely. for reasons I can't possibly imagine. And, <laughs> and um, so, anyway, so I, I turned up for the audition, and... It's one and of I, the great recruitment tools. Oh, yeah. For, for choral music yes. in America, absolutely yes, isn't it? <laughs> um, and, I, and I so I told Richard Marlowe that he, I sadly died this year. Um, I told him that I had no longer had the voice that I had applied to sing in, and he said, oh, "Well, that's a great pity. Um, <laughs> do you have a baritone?" And I didn't really know if I had a baritone to be honest, but but we sung through I, I, we sung through an aria or two. And it, I don't think it was very good, but I've, you know, I was one of those musicians who, you know, I've always been able to sing the notes on the page. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, and, and in the way that a lot of us over in the UK are, are trained to from a very young age, you know, you know, the, the first rule is you get it right. Mm-hmm. Right. And you, you, you sing it in tune and, you know, and so, so I'm, I'm one of those people. And I, and I think, so I think there was a use for me in a choir, even if it was not to make a nice noise. Okay. Um, and, and things kind of. Things sort of grew from there. To be honest, the reason, yeah, to be honest, the moment when I knew that actually I could be a musician, I'd like to be a musician, to answer your question Mm -hmm. that you asked an hour ago, was in my third year, which is my, which is for in England, the the final year, the beginning Mm -hmm. of my third year, 
um, uh, some friends and I decided that we were going to actually make your a, third year is your final year. Yes, it is. Yeah, you do three years. In wow, why can't we fast track these people in America? Because, <laughs> because in England you specialize immediately. Oh, so okay. we don't have that sort of you know, those two years of exploration, the general ed kind of requirement, right? Okay. Uh, you know, and and we're the weaker for it. By the way, I, I think I wish I'd been through that liberal arts system. But okay. we digress. Um, so at the beginning of my third year, some friends and I we decided we were going to try and make a th- try and make a proper go of this little consort mm-hmm. that we'd started that was singing some close harmony and singing some Renaissance music, and you know, and we thought we might just go a little deeper, take it a bit more seriously. And we just we you know, we kind of came up with a name for ourselves. We call ourselves Henry's Eight, which is a pretty cheap pun. But you know, <laughs> Trinity College was founded by Henry the Eighth. Okay. Of course, the you know calling something an eight is also a reference to a rowing crew as as well, which was you know which is obviously which is a huge thing at Cambridge University. Okay. So it's the, I mean it's it's not great, but you know there's, but, there's so many puns in there. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've I like it. it. Yeah. I, like it. I don't think it was my idea. Anyway, but we called ourselves Henry's Eight, and but you know. And it was certainly my job to go and find us interesting music to sing. And, uh, and you know, Cambridge University, like like other universities, has a copyright library where, you know, where an extraordinarily vast collection of, of, of source material exists. And the great thing about the Cambridge University Library in the, what, what we're talking, the mid-90s, mm-hmm. I think it's different now, but basically there were, you know, 19th century or early 20th century um, opera omnia editions of you know of works by uh, you know hundreds of Renaissance composers and they were all there in these massive volumes which are you know which all weigh twenty five pounds mm-hmm. and uh, and a four foot high okay and you kind of creak them open and, and blow the dust away and you know and look at this stuff and it, and you know and there are these there's these massive handwritten staves and you can just kind of haul them over to a photocopier <laughs> you know and, and no one stops you wow. and, and so. So um, I ended up, um, I knew that I liked the composer Robert White, the English Renaissance composer. And, you know, um, from my days as a choir boy at Westminster Abbey, we sung some of his music then. And Robert White used to be organist at Westminster Abbey back in, you know, in the mid 16th century. And so, you know, so I felt an affinity with him. And so I, I started off by just looking at his music more deeply. And and the special thing that happened was um, through this process, we we gathered together some totally unknown Robert White psalm motets. And eight of us got together in the evening and started to sing these pieces through. And we all, you know, we'd, we'd finish a piece and we'd look at each other and go, oh my God, that that is beautiful. And I'm not, you know, it would be, it would be, False, I guess, for me to say that this music had never been sung mm-hmm. in, in any of the collegiate bodies or cathedral bodies, but but I didn't. None of us knew of it, mm-hmm. and it certainly hadn't been recorded. And we really felt like we were uncovering absolute masterpieces, and so we made a recording um, of this music. Um, actually, at this time, an edition of this music was appearing um, in the. Uh, it was a Stainer and Bell edition, so so it was all it's all kind of a nice. Uh, it all kind of happened at the same time in rather in rather a, an elegant way, and we made this recording with the Meridian label, and it was one of those labels where they don't let you do any editing. So what you're hearing is continuous takes. No, oh, there's wow. nothing okay. edited in, in, in this recording at all, and it's not bad. It's you know it, these are twenty twenty year old kids mm-hmm. trying to sing Renaissance music and and difficult Renaissance music mm-hmm. for, at that, um, and you know and it sounds what it is you know earnest and eager and 
you know, and um, and intense and passionate. Mm -hmm. And I think it was in in the process of assembling music for that group that I suddenly found a, a real passion for this stuff. And I also found a, an avenue of music that that was not that I had not been steered into by somebody else, but that I had stumbled on from, for myself by just blowing dust off big books in the library. And it probably feels so much better to, yes. to do it that way. Yeah. I mean, to have made that own, your own discovery. Yeah. I've, you know, for a stubborn person like me, you know, to, had you known about Robert White before? Well, I think, um, there, he wrote four settings of the, um, of the, uh, Compline, um, text Christe qui looks as at DA's and the fourth setting is actually rather well known um and we had I, de I definitely had sung that as a boy at Westminster Abbey and I think that was probably the only thing of his that I knew um and then there of course there are the five parts he wrote two sets of Lamentations of Jeremiah one a five part and a six part and the five part Lamentations were also already quite well known by that point in actual fact I believe that Dr Miller Joe Miller did his doctoral thesis on the five-part limitations oh really yeah. okay is this ssatv or well uh <laughs> is that how that works no, that's, yes, is, that, is that a new uh, you have to part of my ignorance is that is that something that they even cared about in uh, the mid 1500s it, the thing is uh, the, the the rules are all totally different because mm -hmm. um you know it 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 would. Have, it seems like the top parts were taken by un, you know, completely unbroken boys' voices, mm -hmm. but of course, boys in those days would you know, could easily have been a lot older than they are now mm -hmm. as unbroken voices. So you would quite often get fourteen, fifteen, sixteen-year-old boy trebles okay. who are well capable of singing this music, which asks a lot of you physically. Mm -hmm. So breath control and things. Mm -hmm. You know, twelve-year-old boys find that find that sort of thing much more difficult. Um, and then you know, and then of course there is this this slightly lost voice that they used to have in those days, we believe they had in those days, it's a sort of contre voice, the, the voice that, that sort of mixes light tenor and a little bit of falsetto. And, okay. you know, um, it, it's clear that, that, that technically singing was a different process in those days. So was it SSATB? No. Um, it, but so how would you go about putting a choir together for, for, for that? Well, to be honest, I would do it... Most people... Um, most people do it considerably higher than than uh, than written pitch, and then move all of the sort of in between parts up into alto parts and make the soprano parts high, okay. and the bass part doesn't go very low, because you know my particular area of interest is in is in, is in um, broken male voice consort singing, okay, um, um, including countertenors, mm -hmm. and, and the countertenors who sing with me can sing very high, but I, I tend to keep things down in that in that um, in, you know in in the in the lower in the lower pitch and um funnily enough actually that makes english music a bit more unattainable because it's 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 english music particularly that has the high high treble parts mm -hmm. more often it's the continental music that that is more suitable to a, to a male voice ensemble oh, okay all right so so we just to sort of sum everything up yes you really found your your Forte. Your forte, yes. <laughs> your passion for for what you what you you chose to do, I think, through this exploration of Robert White and this recording. And I mean, did you was that sort of the self affirming moment that you were like, yeah, I think I'm doing the right thing? Is that? Yeah, I mean, you have to remember. I, I mean, I wasn't looking for Robert White. I was, you know, I, I think I think the <clears> crucial <throat> mo the crucial thing for me, and you know, I'm loving this interview because I've actually never really thought about this. But I think the crucial All thing good. the crucial thing for me was that. I was finally 
going and doing something entirely from my own energy. Gotcha. Um, and it was it was that process of wandering into a massive, massive, massive library and going, where do I start? Okay, I'll start with this book here. What's in here? And then four hours later, I've got I've got a bunch of music that I've never seen before, but that looks interesting. And I'm taking it back to my friends, and we're singing it through. And all of a sudden, um, you know, this 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 sort of exploratory component to to professional music making becomes a, a realistic possibility for me and that's that's been a turn on ever since is there is there a an outlet here in the u.s for that kind of exploration yes yeah. yes oh yes absolutely i mean you know in, in terms of um, ownership of source material and mm. you know and uh, the, the potential for for musicological exploration yes mm. absolutely i mean right here in, on 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 this campus is a you know is, is an, you know the the um the Shadi collection, mm-hmm. you know, not so much in Renaissance music, I must say, but you know, but uh, but there's still the potential to to unlock um, undiscovered secrets of J.S. Bach. You know, um, there's there's a lot of very important source material that's here in America. The 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 thing is that it's all rather more closely and carefully guarded now. You know, we're we're a little bit more. You're not sticking on the photocopy or anything. No, <laughs> no, we're, no, we're not. But. But but the digitization of, of uh, you know of, of some of these sources has at the same time made you know made viewing original sources mm-hmm. much easier and I think you know it's definitely something that we need to keep an eye on as educators here you know how people you know whether people retain the skill to read music from its original notation um, and you know le- and, and knowing what that what that notation how it actually works because I think that you know we don't. We could. We don't want there to be a separation between the musicologists who can read this music and the performers who sing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you know, if, if there's really is going to be a sort of living, breathing, um, um, continued discovery of this music and what's valuable about it, I think that the people who are able to look at the sources mm-hmm. should also be able to sing it and vice versa. Well, it's almost it's like it's like literacy, just yeah. in general. I mean, yeah. yeah. But I think, I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a more it, it's just a much more lively and you know fulfilling experience if if you don't need to have it decoded before you can sing right. it. You know, if you if you can actually commune with, the, you know, with the with the parchment and, right. and make sense of it. Is there, is there a particular? Trying to figure out how to say this. Is there a particular? Um, is there something that you'd like to see? American choirs adopt that we don't, or is there, or I'm just trying to think of American like choral culture, like the way, you know, what I know of American choral culture is, is, uh, especially, you know, I, I, I come from the, you know, middle school, high school yeah. world, you know, uh, I feel like programming is all pretty much the same, you know, uh, you know, there's, you know, for some, well, for some, some people, it's whatever's on the first page of JW Pepper, you know, dot com. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for some people, um, you know, they sort of adopt maybe what they heard at a, at a, maybe they saw a university concert and, and grabbed the six most attainable pieces from yeah. that concert, you know, or, or, or whatever. Um, is there, is there a way you feel like maybe, people in, in, in the maybe the public school world, because Choir Nation is generally public school teachers, and mm-hmm. um, uh, is there a way, that, you know, because I don't want to sort of get over anybody's head too much, but is there a way that we can, you know, begin to explore 
different material or sort of unearth uh, some old material or or uh, make our concerts more original than sort of yeah. ordering off the publishers, you know, new releases. It's fine, you know. The the question, you know, as you've asked that question, an, an awful lot of different um, different sort of lingering thoughts have been triggered in me. But, you know, one of them being that, you know, I I um, I always feel sad when American choral musicians worry too much about what about about what their um, what their approach might be lacking. Because mm-hmm. I, you know, one of the things that I can tell you of being a, a foreigner here is that you know. It's no no accident that I'm over here. I'm I'm over here because I really, really, really love the way that that music is made over here and the way that music is taught. Mm-hmm. I you know I, I came over to America really to you know to learn to try to learn to lead musicians properly because I think that I think that there's an awful lot that British people can learn from the way Americans make music and. Um, and so, right. I mean, I I believe it wholeheartedly. No, that's not to say that our choirs aren't wonderful. They are, mm-hmm. but but that's you know, but they're elite. You know, and mm-hmm. and that, that's never been the greatest interest to me. You know, it's, it's you know, I, I, I wanted, you know, we have a our president here at Princeton is constantly encouraging us to create musical opportunities for the eager as well as for, as well as for the elite, and I totally buy into that philosophy. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, so I, I don't want people to to kind of look over their shoulders too much here mm-hmm. and worry what's wrong with their programs. But um, having said that, I think that there is uh, there is a, there is a dearth of understanding of counterpoint. Here and I th- and I and I I feel that both amongst you know choirs, singers, conductors, composers, as well. Mm-hmm. And I I think that there is there's an awful lot that we can learn about music making from good counterpoint. And um, you know, and and I I, I regret that. You know, and I I think it teaches an awful lot, especially about singing line. And I think that that's one of the things that we have a weakness a weakness in here is that we you know you know we make we make very good sounds on vowels. You know, we, you know, you know, we understand how the vowel is formed, and we get to the sound, and we make the sound, mm-hmm. you know, rich or pure or whatever it is we want to do with the mm-hmm. sound. But we don't really, um, we don't, we're not so good at, at creating a kind of evolving color of sound through a line um, that draws in the text that's there in the line as well. I mean, mm-hmm. And we're especially not so good in, in the states at at making text come alive through the way that we sing the line of music. In other words bringing the text with us as we sing the line mm-hmm. it's all you know and there, there is a little bit of a tendency just for a series of very pretty vowels mm-hmm. um, so that's one thing and i think that counterpoint can really teach us about that the way that you know the way that those the way that those lines weave we know you know you sing sing four part palestrina and you will hear you hear the um it's the 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 way that words are brought to you in a sort of insistent and repeated way you know you you get that first glimpse of this line of text Mm -hmm. and then and then and then the shadow of it reveals a little more about that text and then another shadow do you see what i mean Mm -hmm. and and you and you sort of through that process you accumulate a really deep understanding of the text echoing you're actually echoing episode 15 you're you're echoing Susie digby a little bit because what she what she said pretty much was she feels as though every everybody should start with the great Renaissance English composers, and to be for the very purpose of learning to why, sing. Why line. English? Why the English composers, though? I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, I, I think I, she said English. I might be totally misquoting her, but she right. definitely said she said, "Dial back to Renaissance, to Renaissance singing, and then you'll learn about line." Yeah, I, I'm. You know, I, I, I think that's absolutely right. But I also think that composers, 
you know, and, and, and a lot of our choral composers here, they come out of that of the choral programmes as well. And, and I would love for them to have that understanding of and respect for Renaissance counterpoint that Brahms did. You know, I mean, remember that Brahms studied counterpoint pretty much every day of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, if it's good enough for him, it should be it should be good enough for us. And, I, and I'm not saying that, that composers should write contrapuntally, mm-hmm. just saying that they should have an understanding of, you know, of, of, of what it can offer. I can't think that there is a there's not really a counterpoint method here in the U.S. Like I think it's a, a really an afterthought. Well, not as a, not as composition, no. But the, but the study of counterpoint in, in you know musicologically is mm-hmm. you know, right. You can certainly do that. But I'm I'm trying to think about. I feel like the the only way that a high school student is going to understand counterpoint is to. It's to sing, sing it, it. <laughs> right? Yeah. So and, you know, and you start with you start with four part Palestrina, and you gradually get more interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the the wonderful thing about the wonderful thing about singing Palestrina, and I didn't, I must say that when I was a kid, I hated it, mm-hmm. and I expect I'm not alone there. Mm-hmm. But the wonderful thing about singing Palestrina is that you, eventually, you know what note is coming next. You barely need, you know, you ba- sometimes you just, you know, you just, you know, you need. The, you know, you need the first phrase in the mm-hmm. you know in the first voice, and then basically you can predict the, the contrapuntal answers to that phrase. Um, it it kind of writes itself almost. It's it's just so exquisitely crafted. And then at the same time, you know, and then after Palestrina, you get introduced to, you know, the slightly more quirky composers, and eventually you end up with people like Lassus, you know, Lassus who lived almost exactly the same. Um, time as mm-hmm. palestrina mm-hmm. but where palestrina is wonderful because you always know what's coming what's coming next lassus is wonderful because you never know what's coming mm-hmm. next and yet still writes you know in the in the, you know, basically with the same tools the same language you think do you think that maybe the sort of like the innate understanding of of counterpoint is like a genetic code sort of thing like like I always felt like when I was you know growing up I think the reason why I felt like I was really drawn to 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 for me personally choral you know to mm. choral singing is mm. that like I always felt like I knew what the next note was going to be yeah and it's funny that you're saying this right now and and I'm wondering if that separates you know um good singers from great singers is that is that there's sort of a, the ability to process what's coming next you know, be, because of maybe some sort of, I don't know whether it's, you know, sort of your musical aptitude or, or whatever, but like, could that be taught? It's, I mean, obviously it's certainly a facet of great sight reading. And I, um, cause I consider myself a terrible sight reader. I'm probably a lot better than I, than I, than I think I am. Right. But I was, I mean, I've sung with some great, some great choirs, you know, and I always got the, you know, the, you know, I was Westminster choir, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, always get a chance to do all these these wonderful choir things, and I think I'm a terrible sight reader. You know, but I shouldn't say that. But um, somehow you, know, you were kind of. I've always made it work. Carried, I, right, I've yes. always made it work. Like you know, I, I always I I'm, I have a good sense of what's coming up next, yeah. and I wonder if that's whether I can read counterpoint. You know, like sort of woo woo, sort of like I'm am I absorb it. Well, I don't know. I don't well, know. I mean, yes. I mean, I would say that. I mean, you know, like the, this interview. there's probably a lot of music where that where, where an understanding of counterpoint is not going to help you. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, maybe then you're, you know, you know, you're just you're, you're just you're just a kind of intuitive musician, you know, who who can who who can kind of get a sense of the composer's musical language fairly quickly mm-hmm. and make some pretty educated guesses as to go along with the skills that you do have as a sight reader, and maybe that maybe all that 
helps. I, you know. I think it's probably just that, and I, I brought this this up in the past in the, on, in the in the podcast, but it's probably just has to do with a little bit of you know what they call imposter syndrome. <laughs> Have you ever dealt with imposter syndrome? No, but I but I'm I'm sure I'm a shining example. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Imposter syndrome is is sort of the idea that like at some point somewhere along your career. People are going to find out that oh. you're a fraud. Oh right, I know what you. Yes, I, oh absolutely. Well, in fact, um, there's a wonderful. Um, I mean, I first came across this. There's a great book by Stephen Fry. I don't know if you know who Stephen Fry is. You no, know, um, he's, he's not Give me the book not, name. Well, the book's called The Liar. But um, but Stephen Fry is a British comedian. He was Hugh Laurie's partner for years and years and years. You know, Hugh, you know Hugh Laurie from Hugh Laurie from from House. Stephen Fry was Jeeves. If you ever watched Jeeves and Worcester. Yeah. Nope. Okay. No. <laughs> so, all right. well, so, so Stephen Fry is a sort of, you know, he's a sort of intellectual and comedian in Britain, okay. but you know, kind of a great mind. And um, he wrote a book called The Liar, and and his character, it's a sort of semi-autobiographical no- novel, novel mm-hmm. and at one point he yells at a professor, he's at Cambridge, and he yells at a professor, a bunch of insults, finishing with da-da-da-da-da, and I hope you get found out. And, and, then, and then, in parenthesis, knowing that every academic lives in constant fear of being found out. And I, and I, I do sort of relate to that, you mm-hmm. know, you know, I mean, I'm kind of, what am I, 41 years old now. And, you know, and I still have this feeling that at some point, you know, the great, you know, some, someone's going to just expose me as a fraud in a big room, you know, and, right. <laughs> and I'll get my comeuppance because, you know, you know, for all the, for all the luck I've had in my life. You right. Know. <laughs> well, cause we, we've been having an issue on this podcast, and, and I'll be very, very blunt, excuse me, <clears throat> blunt, puberty, <clears throat> blunt about it. Um, you know, the, we always, my second question, and I'm, I'm actually happy sort of just to, to jump down, to, to not necessarily follow my own format on this interview, um, but my second question is always, um, tell us a failure story. Like, tell us yeah. a story where things didn't go as planned, and... And I've, I've been receiving, you know, some e- emails and tweets and things from Choir Nation, members of Choir Nation, who have said, I just want to know that the conductors that you have in, in your interviews weren't born, then dipped in bronze, and then, you know, placed on the pedestal next to all the humbles, you know, whatever. And, you know, and, and um, I want to know that they're real human beings, too. And they have all the same insecurities that I have as a as a high school choral musician because because whenever I ask this failure question, I get well it's really hard to talk about the failures mm. you know it's I don't really say I wouldn't really say that there's anything like I just I've been pretty lucky you know and I've been getting sort of these you know not not to discredit the last fifteen people that have been on this on this podcast but I mean I've gotten some. I want to say cop out answer. Well, I'm really I've gotten some cop out answers, you know, to that question, yeah. and um, um, but I really feel like that there's failures. Like failures are what make you better, yeah. you know. And there's got to there's there's times that, that motivates you to, to to learn more and and to be you know I don't know. Do you have do you have you know this sort of when you have this sort of imposter syndrome thought, right? Is is there something that sort of triggers that? Is there like a failure moment back there? I mean, because I think yeah, we all I mean, have it. Yes, I mean, you know, there's a primordial one mm-hmm. for a start, which is you know, which is back when I was 13, and and I think, you know, one of the things that people tell me, people who knew me when I was a boy, um, 
um, for instance, um, so 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 I was a choir boy at Westminster Abbey, and and if, you know so within that choir there are twenty two boys, and then there's a row of men on you know on each side of the choir as mm-hmm. well. You know four altos, four tenors, four basses. Some of them I'm now friends with. One of them is Nigel Short. Nigel Short was a was a counter tenor in Westminster Abbey Choir mm-hmm. when I was a little boy. He tells me in that I... Nation, Nigel Short is the director of Tenebrae. That's right. And you should absolutely listen to every recording of Tenebrae. Yeah, and Nation, uh, Nigel was also my colleague in in the King Singers as well. So we've so we've been friends for a long time. He should be one of your guests. Oh, no, I would no love doubt to have about him. it. I mean, he's um, you know Tenebrae coming here in October. You should you should snare him. I would. You better believe it. Yeah. But anyway, he tells me that that all those the men in Westminster Abbey Choir used to call me the robot. And, um, you know, and the, you know, there was this sort of challenge to make the robot laugh, to, to distract the robot. And, um, and I, apparently I was, you know, I was uncorpsable. I was, I was indistractable because I was so intensely focused on being, on getting everything right. It's mm-hmm. all I really cared about. I don't think I really cared at all about beauty, about the, about the beauty of the music. And I, I was not really involved in it musically. I was just, just as a discipline. It's quite sad to think about that now. Um, but you know, so I can. I was just obsessed with, with getting things right, and so my this you know, the primordial failure was actually as a violinist, you know, and it was and that was it was rather humbling because it was also you know a huge disappointment I think to my mum. Anyway, uh, when, when I was twelve, I applied to one of the specialist music schools in Britain. We have four, I think, Cheatham's. Purcell School, the Yehudi Menuhin School, and a place called Wells Cathedral School, which is mm-hmm. near where I lived in Bristol. So I applied there um, as a twelve-year-old to go and to go and be a sort of specialist violinist, mm-hmm. and I failed. And um, I'm all, <laughs> you didn't get in. A little crack in my voice there. Yeah, I didn't get in. Um, I, I don't. I don't think I was that close. And in fact, um, you know, and, and I was, you know, I. I I was, my heart was never in playing the violin, but I but I wanted to do it, you know, because you know because my mum was sort of, you know, was certainly very keen for me to do these things, mm-hmm. and, and then I applied for to play to be a member of the National Youth Orchestra in Britain, and I failed there as well. So um, you know, and in the meantime, you know, my younger siblings were scorching past me as players, mm-hmm. I mean, absolutely scorching past me, leaving me for dust, and um, and and I think I mean that was presumably part of the reason why I rebelled against the idea of, of making music for quite a while. Um, and then, you know, and then, and then only came back to it once it was on my terms and, and, and in my territory. Mm-hmm. Um, more recently, um, I mean, um, I didn't come to conducting until I was 30. Uh, I didn't, I didn't even think I wanted to do it until really? I was 30. So, so, um, so I kind of, I escaped some of those traumatic early twenties experiences. Uh, and I, you know, I, I think, I think some, there would have been some awful sort of blood on the walls, you know, <laughs> if I, if I, but, but I can't, I mean, for, I can remember the first concert I put together as the new director of choral activities at DePaul university. I can remember putting together my first concert there and, and, you know, and we, you know, the, the final rehearsal before we went on stage, there was a kind of open rebellion going on in the in the ranks in front of me because none of them really felt like they knew the music we were singing because I hadn't at all worked out how to plan rehearsals properly, you know, how to not get obsessed with what you know with with ten bars of music, you know, and and also the things that students needed, like you know, like, like a, a sense of comfort with the overall architecture of a piece of music, you know, mm-hmm. a feeling that we, you know, as you stand up on stage to sing a piece, 
yeah, we know how this goes. We've performed it from beginning to end. We've, we've got a feeling for the, you know, for the, for the amount of stamina we're going to need to reserve to do this or mm-hmm. do this. I hadn't thought, I hadn't really worked any of that stuff out. And, um, you know, the first concert I did there was a pretty terrifying experience. And, you know, and, you know, I did have a sense when I went to Depaul that I, you know, that this was the right place for me because, you know, because if I make some, if I make some bad mistakes, you know, it's not like the whole world is going to be watching. Right. But at the same time, you know, um, there were, that people were watching and, mm-hmm. and, and people needed good leaders and, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 you know, it's a wonderful, wonderful school and I had great colleagues and they were all looking to me to be a, to be a good part of this good school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I definitely, I definitely failed then. My first concert there was not a success. Um, I would say that in my first year, I didn't have many concerts that were that that got anywhere near, you know. And in fact, um, and then you know, with the with the large chorus, the the, the university chorus there. Well, did you feel is, like you tapped out? Did you feel like you tapped out your your ability level, or you just didn't even you didn't even did you live up to your own expectations in those concerts? Or I mean, or like, were were you just learning to be a conductor? On the job, yeah, do you well, feel like? absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they fact, I mean, they sort of forgot to ask me when they interviewed me if I'd ever conducted a choir. <laughs> well, because you came with a great resume, right? Yeah, I, mean, I did. I did, I, I did have a yeah, but I mean, but I mean, you know, and there is a course. There, there was a sort of rather nice blinding light on that resume, mm-hmm. but actually, if you looked beyond that light, there wasn't a great deal. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I had to, I had to apply there. Um, I had to send in material of me conducting. What's the blind? The King Singers. Yes, being the blinding light. I, that was the blinding light. Yes, I think so. But I, know, but I had to submit, a, you know, a, a tape of me conducting a choir, and I, of course, I'd never, I had, I had never conducted a choir before. Um, so I borrowed a friend's choir. I borrowed so a chap called Eamon Dugan, who's a great, he's a great English musician now. He's the assistant conductor of the Sixteen. Mm-hmm. He ran a choral society in North London, the Hampstead Choral Society, and I asked him if I could borrow his choir. Is it hamster? Hampstead. Oh, Hampstead. Hampstead. <laughs> I heard hamster. Well, I have, yeah. <laughs> that would be yeah. a fun choir. Oh yeah, we should start that. <laughs> we should. Yeah. The hamster. That's like that's like the barking dogs. Yeah, they for never Christmas stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the um. So I, I asked. So I borrowed this choir and and I conducted. I, I led them through a rehearsal of a piece by Constant Lambert called called Rio Grande. You may not know it. It's a very, very English piece. And, um, I was going to say, it's not, not, the, not the one from the 80s. Not the real No, no, no. You mean Duran Duran. No, <laughs> Duran, Duran. no it's not Duran Duran. No. Um, but uh, <laughs> it's similarly sort of over the top and gothic. You know? Okay, okay. Um, but uh, so, so I led a rehearsal of this piece and sent the tape in. And they must have thought, I'm not, not sure what to do about this, but we'll get him in anyway for an interview. And, you know, and, and um, you know, and I was persuasive as i as i as you know as i can be in those mm-hmm. circumstances and and I, I hope i hope eventually i think it worked out as a good appointment of course and it i think i hope it you know and it was it was a it was a happy time and mm-hmm. i had a i had a i had a very very happy five years there um but the first year was painful i i was going to say i mean the, the other big failure was the first concert i did with the big choir the unauditioned choir the university chorus was disastrous because i you know it with this kind of extraordinary stupidity and vanity that I sometimes have. Mm-hmm. I programmed an entire concert of Vaughan Williams, um, including the including the Mass in G minor. Oh. I don't know what I was thinking. I had three tenors and I had three tenors and eighty sopranos in this choir, you know. And I and, and um I mean it was it was it was horrendous. Mm-hmm. And and not because and only because I you know 
I'd chosen a, a piece that I, you know, that I, it just hadn't occurred to me how difficult this piece is and, and how stupid it is to program it when you have so few tenors. Did you not, did you not maybe have a perspective on what it was like to be an American choral singer enough? I mean, you know, no. like you just overestimated, did you overestimate? I, I think it's, a, but I, I think I overestimated, uh. overestimated myself. I mm-hmm. think, I think I've just kind of, I think it was just a sort of silly vanity. Mm-hmm. Um, Ego first. It was ego first. You yeah, think? Mm-hmm. yeah. And I, you know, I mean, that's something that we always, we always, we all have to be wary of all the time, you know. And and uh, and I think, you know, smarter people than me have opined about uh, on this. You know, if 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 you stand in front of a choir in concert and they give a bad performance of a piece of music, it is always, 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 always your fault. Mm-hmm. It is always your fault, you know? And, and you know, it, one of your responsibilities, uh, uh, you know, along with teaching them notes, as, you know, and, and you know, and, and shaping the music and all of mm-hmm. that, you know, is programming the right music, you know, relative to the amount of rehearsal time that you have. It's, mm-hmm. You know, and I, I hope, I hope I've learned that now, but we must never be complacent, you know, that I, I still... I still am prone to those sort of those acts of vanity now. I think, and, and I always will be. Yeah, it's a great answer. That's a great answer. I mean, I think that's exactly what I think that's exactly what what Choir Nation needs to hear. Yeah, you know, because I because I remember my my first concert as a middle school choir director. I pulled out. I joke about it all the time on the on podcasts. You know, I pulled out Frida Alverden for the first, you know, for the first middle school choir concert. I mean, I didn't, but I mean, you know, <laughs> you almost just lost yourself. No, but I mean, you know, it. I was a hotshot twenty something. Yeah. You know, twenty two year old coming out in, you know, from from the Westminster Choir. You know, and, you know, and and I had had mountaintop musical experiences. Yeah. yeah. And here I am. You know, here I am, my first job, and I expect to bring everyone with me yeah. to the mountaintop. And then you feel like an idiot. Oh my God! Yeah. Did I feel like an idiot? Even when I st- when I started my when I started VoiceWorks, my first company, I started with a with a um, my niche. One of my niches is is handbells. Oh yeah. Um, and well, you're yeah, um, from the right institution. Uh, that's true. <laughs> um, and uh, I have this group called Impulse Handbell Ensemble, and uh, we used barred equipment, barred space when I first started this, and I programmed ridiculous music. Yeah. Uh, to, you know, a group of kids that hadn't played handbells in a couple of years. It's a big, very long story, but but it was a spectacular failure. Um, now the group's really great now, but, but I mean, uh, you know, I learned, you, you learn some lessons yeah. about what's important and I, in, in, I think, you know, I, I think it's, I've heard so many conductors say this, it, 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 you know, it is your job to make sure that your choir has a positive, has a positive experience yeah. every time they go out there. And, and if you didn't, if they didn't have a positive experience, it, yeah, it is your fault and you need to go back and reevaluate. Um, thanks for that answer. It's a great answer. Um, it's good for me to think of it every now and then. I have a, uh, there's a podcast I listen to called Solopreneur Hour. Uh, it's and one of the questions he asks, and I think it would be very fun to ask you, is what did your childhood smell like? And that's where we're going to conclude this week. Find out Gabriel's very entertaining answer next week when we come back for part two of the Find Your Forte podcast, episode 17 with Gabriel Crouch. 
In the meantime, please make sure to join us online, facebook.com forward slash findyourforte, or search up the Choir Nation Facebook group and request an invitation to join. I really appreciate you spending the time with me today, and I hope you have a wonderful week. Thank you for listening to Find Your Forte with Ryan Guth. As always, join Ryan online at www.ryanguth.com for detailed show notes and discussions on every episode. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. Until next time, be amazing.